0: Welcome to the latest episode of CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. Before we get started, I want to get a, give a quick shout out to my brother-in-law, Kevin, and his friend, Max Levy, who they did the intro to Cleveland Rocks. Uh, that was all them. Shout out to them. A lot of people have been asking me about that. They did a great job with that. Moving on to the episode, one of the things I like about music history is the sort of side players who have great stories to tell. And while they weren't the face of a band, their their resume and their their legacy is solidified in what they've done. For instance, you go up to someone and ask them who played the solo on I Love Rock and Roll. They're going to tell you Joan Jett. It's not true. As, as most of you know, tuning into this podcast, Ricky Bird plays that iconic solo. But it's also just one of the amazing things he's done. He was in Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, of course. But he's played with so many legends. Roger Daltrey, Ian Hunter, Todd Rundgren, Bruce Springsteen, so many more. And to listen to him talk now is to understand this incredible journey that he's been through. Uh, This is a guy who was struggling with addiction at the peak of his career. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts are on top of the world. They're releasing platinum albums and Ricky Bird is drugged out of his mind. He gets sober in the middle of this run and you don't have to have me tell you the story because Ricky's been very vocal about it and he's turned his music in his recent solo career and his latest album which he just released Sobering Times is the focus is his recovery the focus is is to help people who are struggling with addiction get through these things and it's pretty tremendous achievement and it's inspirational and it's one of my favorite interviews I've done probably my favorite for CLE Rocks is with Ricky Bird, and I'm just happy to welcome him to the podcast. How's life, Ricky?
1: Life is very uh, busy at the moment. Um, You know, doing a lot of promo for the record and, um, you know, I'm doing this, like interviews and stuff, but I'm also the guy that packs up the packages for pre-orders and takes them to the post office.
0: So you don't have a guy?
1: I don't have a guy.
0: I, I haven't had a guy in a long time.
1: But, I you know, there's something cool about being hands-on and, and kind of grassroots. But, uh, you know, I'm signing CDs and putting stickers and guitar picks and packages. And you know, every time I walk into the post office now, they're like, oh, man, he's back.
0: <laughs> you know, listening to Sobering Times, there's certainly a positive, uplifting energy with this record that that's refreshing to hear, especially now.
1: It's a rock and roll record, man. It's just the message is specific.
0: Going along with the message of this album, you recently hit 33 years of sobriety and this might be ignorance on my part, but I'm curious when you, when you reach that date every year, is it a time of celebration? Is it humbling? Is it a moment of reflection or all of the above?
1: I think all of the above is, is proper. I mean, it is a long time, you know, but, uh, the key with this, with this addiction thing is like, you gotta stay on the ball because, um, although I'm not active anymore, I still have the predisposition of an alcoholic and an addict. So, and all the emotional stuff that goes with it and, uh, you know, that kind of business. So the key is like, um, it's, it's not just another day. It's pretty cool, but, um, it's, it's another day in recovery, you know, it's just kind of, I get, I might get a little bit weird, like, uh, as it comes, gets close to it, just thinking about it and reflecting on, on how I started. Um, I have been thinking about the, like, the be- very beginnings, um, and how, uh, kind of, uh, it was a little confusing at the beginning, you know, uh, it's a whole new way of life and you gotta learn to adapt to it. But the good thing about recovery is you don't do it alone. There's, um, you know,
0: there's people in recovery that came before you that are always there once you reach out. When you look at this journey you've been on, and you're with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts having so much success, but you're struggling with addiction, are you able to look back on those times and enjoy the memories, or is it hard to to take yourself back to that moment? No, I mean,
1: I don't have any um, – I mean, one thing for sure is I never um, – I never went on stage whacked out. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, I was, uh, you know, I'm not saying I didn't smoke a joint before the show or have a beer or two, you know, during the show or whatever, but really my partying was, was, um, after the shows, um, whether we were staying in town, um, or on the bus, the tour bus going to the next place. The next day was spent recovering. And, um, and when I was not on the road, when I was at home, it was, you know, a lot of partying. You know, so, so, I mean, I, I remember most of the stuff from back then, you know, I have a lot of photos, thank God. Um, (laughs) I mean, I wasn't in good shape, I guess, physically, I had a couple of near misses there. Um, I was very underweight, (laughs) let's just leave it at that. But, um, I mean, it was a, it was a terrific experience being with Joan and the Blackhearts, you know, that was the beginning of, um of all the stuff that I did, to, uh, you know, after that, that was, that, that was the, that was the leading, that was the leading, uh, the lead off batter. How's that? The lead off batter.
0: <laughs> Obviously most people associate you with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, but when you look at your resume, it's legend after legend that Ricky Bird has played with.
1: Well, it's cool because, um, you know, I haven't really played in that many bands. Um, I was in a band before uh, Joan called Susan. We were on RCA for one album. Um, I, I then I toured with GE Smith who was with the Saturday Night Live Band. I did it he was we were with the same management company and he was doing a record, he was doing going on tour, opening for Squeeze, by the way. Um, and he asked me if I'd like to be the second guitar player. So that was after Susan ended and before Joan. Um, and uh after Joan, you know, I tried to put together some rock and roll bands that never quite worked out. I was trying to figure out what I sounded like. Um, And at the beginning, until I sussed it all out, I was sort of like a you know tag job Rolling Stones, (laughs) to be, to be exact. Well,
0: you certainly weren't the only one. No, I know, I know.
1: But but I was trying to find out what I who who was I? What do I sound like? Until I until I um uh started to relax and just just be um instead of thinking who am I, I just started to be who I am. So what does that mean? Like all the music that you hear me do on this record, on Clean Getaway, on Lifer that came before it. Is, is a product of who I listened to when I was 14, 15, 16, 17. And it's, and, and I'm just a mishmash of all that stuff. And, you know, cause I grew up at a great time. I was a teenager in the seventies. You know, I was a little, I was a little kid in the sixties. You know, I mean, I first knew I wanted to be a musician when I was like 1964 or 65 when I heard and saw the Beatles on TV and the Stones um well let me say the stones and the beatles <laughs> i was a stones kid but um so i knew that i wanted a, that you know that was for me but i i started absorbing music um and looking into music and delving into music in the beginning of the 70s um i loved british rock and roll so i i went everywhere from the stones to the kinks to the who to humble pie and then because New York radio was so cool, I, I learned about Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and, um, um, Wilson Pickett and Al Green, you know, and I would read rock magazines and I still have all my rock magazines, by the way. Um, and I would read that, you know, Keith Richards was it, would tell me about, um, Albert King and this one would tell me about John Lee Hooker and this one would tell me about this soul singer and Eddie James and this. So, you know, uh, I had a wide range of stuff and I think, there's little bits of everything. You know, Mata Hoopal I grew up on, and I did get to play with Ian Hunter on a tour, which was fabulous, and and did a record with Roger Daltry in a radio tour, which was pretty damn cool. But um to your point, well, that list of all the people that I've shared a stage with is because I guess I'm at that stage in my career because I'm not really in a band or anything. Um, I get asked to be part of these like events, right? So it's always like an all-star band. Um, and they, we have like a core band. We always, we, we always get asked. It's, it's like me, Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel's band and, uh, the, I don't know, Will Lee sometimes on bass or Paul Schaefer. There's like a bunch of us and we all do the same kind of events. Um, and we back up these great artists and that's the list that you're looking at. So, you know, <laughs> three songs with Smokey Robinson, a couple of songs with Sam Moore. I played with Mavis Staples. I played with Bruce Springsteen. I played with you know, Elvis Costello and Dion and this, you know, it's all because it's at events and I'm in the band. Oh, Brian <laughs> Wilson played and how's that playing, playing, uh, um, was it in my room? I think it might have been in my room with Brian Wilson and and another one of the faster ones and I can't remember what it was. One of the, you know, I was sitting like right behind him. It was like the hair in your arm was like standing straight up. <laughs>
0: I remember you telling that story about watching the Beatles and Rolling Stones on the Ed Sullivan show when you were nine uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in 2015 here in Cleveland. Going back to watching, you know, those bands early on, how did you comprehend at such a young age the magnitude of what you were witnessing?
1: Well, I came from a family that always had music playing in the house. We lived with my grandparents at that point in the Bronx. I grew up in the Bronx. And there was always the radio was on. But we they were listening to like Tommy Dorsey and Frank Sinatra and you know, Sammy Davis and Dean and you know, all kinds of cool stuff. But every Sunday night we'd all sit around the TV and watch the Ed Sullivan show, like every family did back then. Um as a family. Um and, and Ed Sullivan, you know, it was a variety show, so he would have he'd have old school people like I just mentioned. He'd have magicians, he'd have like juggling acts, he'd have comedians he'd have like uh like the cast of you know of uh a Broadway show that was big at the time um like Oklahoma or something like that and then he would have uh, rock and roll bands like you know Elvis and um i don't remember seeing Elvis but um i uh, I'm sure i did but maybe that i was too young to kind of recognize what i was watching but um uh, when the stones in 64 65 i was like 8 9 years old you know, I was already, which ties into the whole addiction thing. Um, I felt different as a little kid. Maybe most kids do, but I, I felt as an only child, I felt, I kept to myself. I loved to read. I loved baseball. Like, you know, always either listening to the radio, to music or playing baseball and, and reading comic books, which I'm looking at where right? I still have all my comic books too, uh, which is frightening. But, um, you know, I just felt I was very like a loner kind of, you know. And and it's weird that like the friends that I had were older than me. Um, so but I so I see the Stones on TV. Yeah, the Beatles, I love the Beatles. But when I saw the Stones, they look like I said in in my speech, right? They look like I felt. And um and then the girls were screaming, so I thought that was interesting. That that could work. Uh, because I was just like skinny little kid with like a George Harrison haircut with braces, you know. <laughs> uh, and I think I had glasses at some point. Which I'm back to now. I haven't worn my contacts since the pandemic, uh, started. And, and so, so you got, you got, like I said, the, you know, they look like I felt the girls were screaming and, and something inside me when I saw Ed's face, like, you know, this old guy who I'm probably older than now, um, he looked horrified, you know, like, and I just was like, yeah, cool. That looks right. <laughs> You know, since let's, let's go against society, right? The adults. Um, so I thought something inst- instinctively told me that that was cool. And then I asked my mom for, for a guitar, you know. And it took, you know, a couple of weeks later, maybe, her boss that she worked for at the time gave her a guitar to give me, an acoustic guitar that now is in the rock hole. You
0: know, listening to your last two albums, Sobering Times and Clean Getaway that came before it, how and when did you decide that your recovery was going to be the focal point of your music
1: well i i tell you i, I never really thought to combine uh, music and recovery i remember the last record that i did with joan on the back cover i had uh like a like a recovery medallion around my neck you know because i always wore it back then uh and actually i still have the same one um i'm starting to sound like a hoarder aren't i <laughs>
0: Well, it's all cool stuff so
1: far. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I have my baseball cards, too. Can I add that? I have them all, in, book. cool. yeah, all in books. Those
0: are cool. All in books by
1: team, man. That's a sick wow. I am. Wow. Wow. um So I was wearing this medallion, you know, and I started to get letters, because that's what it was then, um, from a couple of people that said, man, it's so cool that you're sober, or I'm sober, or you know, I have this in my family and this and that. So that, that was, I, I remember thinking how cool that was, and then I never thought about it again. And then about, I don't know, now it's got to be, well, let's see, I wrote Broken is a Place in 2012, that was on the Clean Getaway record. So maybe a couple of years before, 2000, maybe 2010, 8, to 9, somewhere in there, um, I was invited to do a, like a recovery outdoor kind of rock show down in Florida by my friend. Um, and so, yeah, it sounds cool. Like, I had no, there was no recovery songs involved. He had one. And it was, like, cool. It was, like, in Fort Lauderdale, I think it was. It was 180 degrees. And um, they had, like, tables set up alongside the stage. Uh, little, you know, this wasn't, like, a huge event or anything. And where they were selling sort of literature and where to go if you're struggling. And, and they had, you know, jewelry, you know, recovery jewelry and stuff. So we played. And I, I didn't play. I think I played on his song. And I played I Love Rock and Roll, maybe. But, um, and I spoke for five seconds. And, and I had people coming over to me after the show saying, man, I grew up on your music. It's so great to know that you're in recovery as well. And, and they would tell me stories. So, you know, that, that light they talk about that goes off, you know, goes on over your head. I was like, that's interesting. So we, we started to do that, the, those shows. We, we had a, um, the third guy we were working with, we, he was booking these shows down, mostly in Florida. Same thing every time. And, and we, so I put together an all-star band with Liberty DeVito, Christine Ullman, uh this guy Muddy Shoes who played with Southside Johnny, who I also played with for a while. Um, uh, Who's on keys? Jeff Kazee maybe on keyboards, uh, or Andy Burton on keyboards, and um, uh, Richie Supa, who, my friend that I was talking about. We wrote Broken is a Place together, uh, and he's the one that invited me down to Florida to do this thing. We started doing these gigs. Now we had no, there was no recovery. In, Uh, music involved and we were just doing like rock and roll cover songs but we still had the same react but people still talked about you know they'd come over to us and say that stuff so now I'm I'm like yeah this is cool somewhere around 2012 uh, I was having like a rough recovery week or something like that What happens every once in a while you know you go through emotional stuff you don't you drink or drug no matter what but you you go through stuff and I was talking to Richie Soup and and he says why don't you come down here and let's write about it so I went and stayed at this house. and We wrote Broken is a Place. And I came back to New York. I recorded a cheap demo of it. I put it online, and I started getting like messages from around the world. You told my story. Uh, I feel exactly the same way. I identify. Now I'm like, okay, what the hell is going on here? So I wrote a second song. Then I wrote a third, and me and Richie wrote a couple. When I had enough songs, uh, maybe six or seven songs, I... I called somebody that ran a treatment facility that, you know, we were, we knew from me doing these gigs in Florida. Like, I knew, I live in New York. Um And I said, what, I know you have places up in uh New Jersey. What if I came with my guitar and did, like, recovery musicals? They said, yeah, that'd be cool. So I came in there. I had no clue what I was doing. I just, I told my story a little bit and I played these songs and I had people, like, you know. The same deal, dude. Like, tough, big, tough guys coming over. You made me cry. You know? Like, that's my story. You know? And, and, um, I was just like, wow, this is kind of cool, man. This is like my third act or something. Maybe I'm supposed to be doing this. Um, and, and the, the constant message I got from those recovery music groups, which I became, I guess, a recovery troubadour, um, was, where do I get the music? And I kept putting it off, like, you know, oh man, what am I gonna do? An album? And then um finally I after getting asked every single time, I said, All right, let's do an album. So I called Bob Stander, who's my co producer out in Long Island, and um I said, uh, let's do this let's do this record. So, you know, we got some cool musicians. it's, it's the same cast of characters I used on this one. Uh, on that one I had, I had Steve Hawley on drums. We played with wings, I had Jeff Kazee and Andy Burton. Andy plays with um little Steven, uh, when he's on the road and, uh, Jeff plays with Southside Bob standard, my co-producer is a great bass player. So he played bass. I played all the guitars, Christine Oman, uh, sang backgrounds. Uh, my friend Marge Raymond, uh, who used to sing with like ELO and stuff, she sang backgrounds and we put out clean getaway. Right. And then I started to get this like amazing response from people. Uh, it's the same deal. I started getting this amazing response. Um, from people not only in recovery but people outside recovery or, or people that support the recovery lifestyle uh, and they said listen I, I want to get can I get another one I want to give this to uh, you know my cousin is suffering from addiction she's struggling with opioids Like can I send it to and I would start to get all these messages again same deal um, and then what I started to do is once clean getaway was finished I started to bring stacks of clean getaway to, to my recovery music groups every time I went I had some constant ones I did and then I went around the country and did, uh, you know, uh, treatment facilities and detention, uh, juvenile detention centers and some schools. And then I was a keynote speaker at recovery events. And I would bring a stack of them and I would give them out to the uh, clients at, in treatment so they could take the message home. And I wound up giving out around 2500 of Clean Getaway. Um, and then what happens as a guitar player, right? Like as a songwriter, when you finish that album and you're done, I mean, you know, you don't even want to look at a guitar for a couple of weeks. Me, I'm just speaking for me. Uh, I I don't know about anybody else, Uh, but then I picked it up and all of a sudden I wrote another freaking recovery song, Uh, but I said, uh, here we go again. Uh, So I started writing these songs, but this time I wanted to make it, I wanted to widen the path so people that aren't necessarily struggling with addiction uh, would get it. It's about changing your life for the better and, and, and gratitude and, you know, all kinds of good stuff. And there's some hard-hitting songs on there that are very specific to drugs and alcohol. But um, I just wanted to get, um, I figured, you know, business-wise also, I wanted to get some airplay. <laughs> um, so I, I made I made it a little less less obvious, even though you'd have to be, you know, tone-deaf to not understand what this is about. Um, and we recorded the same cast of characters. I used a few more drummers. I got Tommy Price, who played with me with Joan, um, to play on two songs. I, I had Rich Pagano, who plays with the Fab Foe. I uh, played on the opening track, Quit in Time. I had Liberty DeVito, uh, Billy Joel's, uh, you know, ex drummer, former drummer. And I had, um, Steve Holly played on three quarters of the record. And, and the rest is, is the same cast of characters. And, and here we go, you know. And why is it called Sobering Times? I went crazy, dude. I could not think. I have, a, I'm not, if I showed you my phone right now, there's, there's, in the notes, there's like 70 titles. <laughs> and and maybe you know 60 to 63 of them suck uh you know filed under sounded good at the time and and the rest of them like i i said oh this is amazing i google and there's like eight albums with that title <laughs> and then i'm and then i'm on the phone with somebody just talking about current events and and i just went dude this is these are really sobering times and i went yikes <laughs> i stumbled onto the title you know
0: You mentioned having Tommy Price on the album, who, of course, was in the Black Hearts as well. Is it just a friendship, you know, a working relationship that you guys have maintained all of this time?
1: Well, no, I mean, I, I, we, I don't see him all the time or I don't talk to him all the time. We've, we're still friends, obviously. But when I, was, when I was putting together the record and writing the songs, right, like I don't, I don't have that thing where the whole album has to sound like a style. That's, that's not what I do. I just like, I write this song, and yeah, you know, this would sound good as a, like a big glam rocker, or this would be a great acoustic strummy kind of song, and this would be, you know, there's even the third song on the Hear My Song, I play on um, Mando guitar, um, so each song had like a feel to it, all me, you know, all stuff I grew up on, really, uh, style-wise, but, but I, I, I get to, I have some leeway, because this is not quite a solo record as much as a concept record, I mean, yeah, it's a solo record, but i get to do what i want and and, um you know there's no record company per se to be involved so i get to do i have i don't have to answer to anybody um all i wanted to do was to make sure that the message got through to people that were struggling uh people that um uh, are in long-term recovery people that support the recovery lifestyle and rock and roll fans that was all i was interested in and um Uh so when I got to the song Together, which is the big glam rocker, the second song, I was like, Tommy Price has got to play on this. So I called him and he came out there. He played on Together. And then as he was going to leave, I said, dude, let me play this one thing. I'm going to do a cover of a Merle Haggard song. And and he just played it on the spot right there. And we had to finish that one. The bottle let me down. We finished that long distance by phone because I had only put down like some rough scratch tracks so we finished it uh in march uh, over the phone which was kind of cool
0: the majority of songs on this album are originals but there is a cover of merle haggard's the bottle let me down obviously it fits with the the message of the album was that just a favorite song of yours that you wanted to tackle
1: yeah you know what it is a favorite of mine
0: and i'm always looking for cool kind of
1: recovery songs like on the clean getaway record i did kicks uh because um two it's interesting They talk about uh things happening for a reason so I'm sitting in my car, for, like, you know, getting ready to put together the clean getaway record. And I said, you know what? I, I need a good, I need one good cover song that has to do with drugs. I really do. I, and I'm sitting there, I'm listening to Little Stevens on the Grand Garage. And all of a sudden I hear, and I went, Oh, interesting. I looked up. I said, well, well done. You know, so that was kicks, like one of the first rock and roll, uh, anti-drug songs, right? Um, and then for this one, I actually cut two songs. I always loved, I love Merle Haggard, so I always loved The Bottle Let Me Down. Um, there was a great one that I listened to by the Statler Brothers, and why can't I remember it right now? It's about heroin, though. And I said, nah, it's too heavy for this. Uh, and the other song I cut, I was um, sitting, again, I'm sitting in my car listening to Underground Garage, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what song could I do for this record? I need one what? I'm racking my brain, and all of a sudden, the beginning of Reach Out, I'll Be There comes on the radio. And I'm like, yeah, reach out I'll be there. There it is. So I cut reach out I'll be there and it's a pretty damn good cut and I'll probably put it out down the road but as we were like like finishing up this record there was this commercial for like I don't I can't remember if it was car insurance or something and there was this really um how should I put this? bland version of it sounded like like frat boys or something like recorded it. I, I don't know. It was like weird of reach out I'll be there. Um, and I just went, yeah, maybe I'm going to hold off on this one for a while. (laughs) So I put, so, so when I got home, you know, when the quarantine started, I was like one, one song I cut, like we, we got down to like 15 songs. I'm like, I'm not putting 15 songs down. And dude, I'm like crazy. I'm like, I I go on Google and I go, okay, albums with 15 songs, (laughs) (laughs) albums with 14 songs. Oh wait, there's a Beatle record. So that's cool. You know, but I wanted to get down to 12 like Clean Getaway. Why? Because uh, there's 12 steps in uh, the 12-step program. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and um, I was short one because there was one that I did that I wasn't quite um, like over the top in love with, but we're going to fix it. Um, so uh, I went back and listened to the stuff that we didn't quite finish. And I heard the bottle let me down. And all I heard was Tommy on drums, me on rhythm guitar and a scratch vocal. And I And so the main thing was the vocal. And I said, yeah, that's a pretty good vocal for a scratch vocal. One take. Just turn the mic on. Let me sing so people can play to me. So once I decided on that, Bob played bass. We sent it to Jeff Kazee by email. He played keyboards. Uh, we had the drums and Jeff is a great singer, Jeff Kazee. So he sang backgrounds. I said, I called him. I said, give me some Keith harmonies, some seventh, you know, Keith, uh, seventh note harmonies. Um, and, and there you go. So, and then we said, all right, let's mix it. It's on the record. There you go.
0: When you hear about your journey from addiction to recovery, it isn't like the movies, right, where this rock star hits rock bottom after getting kicked out of the band. You got sober while Joan J and the Blackhearts were still on top of the world releasing chart topping albums.
1: Yeah, I hit a wall. It was it was do or die, you know. Like I was I was, you know, 128 pounds. I was doing a lot of stuff of dry goods and drinking that went along with it and tons of, you know, pot smoking, I've been smoking since I was thirteen, so that went along for the eighteen year ride that I had. Um and I just hit a wall, man. I just knew that if I kept going something really bad was gonna happen. And I already had something bad happen back in eighty three, um, with my lung. So, you know, I, I, I reached out to somebody. Um, I ran into somebody a month before I made the phone call at a wedding, I ran into them and I was asking if they had any drugs and they said, No, 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 I'm in recovery now and so And I was like, I, this is what I want to hear right now. Um, it's the last thing. But that's the number that I kept. And that night, uh, September 25th, 87, is the number I called, like, at 2 in the morning.
0: And on the track, Hear My Song, you sing, Something Changed One Faithful Night, I Saw the Light. So that's that moment. Yeah.
1: Well, actually, I said, like Hank Williams said, but I saw the light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to get that in there. I played that for Steve Earl that song, and he, sm- he, like, laughed when I sang that part. Yes. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll take that. Maybe I did write that for about that night.
0: Right. They're song lyrics, so you don't always know if there's a deeper meaning or not.
1: Dude, I, I, dude I'm just trying to rhyme. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, but I mean, the, the, like the, that song in particular, I sat down. I had just gotten that guitar at NAM in Nashville a couple of years ago, uh, maybe two summers ago, I think it was. And um, maybe it's three now. Wait. So I get back to New York and I'm sitting there with the mando guitar, which has six strings because I had a mandolin, a very old one that I, I got destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. So I forgot how to play mandolin. So I got this mando guitar and I'm sitting on my couch and I'm playing. And, uh, you know, I just sort of, the way I write songs, it starts with a, a guitar of some sort. And then I start mumbling stuff. I said, you know, melody second for me. Um, and then I keep mumbling. And everybody, every time I co-write with somebody, they say, D- "Dude, what was that you just said?" I'm like, "I don't know. I was just mumbling." No, 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 that was good. <laughs> so I guess I'm the I'm the mumbler. Um, but I'm sitting on the couch and I'm singing and I'm singing the melody to myself. I'm humming the melody and I go, "I wanna sing about how lucky I am. You're looking at one grateful man." I went, huh, that's good. You know, here's a happy song. You know, something to be something to be joyous about." And then I got deep into and in, in the middle in the bridge. Uh, uh, please save me. Re- please save me from myself. I'm tired of this hell, you know. And then it's about reaching out. So yeah, I guess you're right. I guess maybe subconsciously I'm writing a little bit about I'm writing about my story. But there's stuff on there that's just about addiction. The general story we have very common stories with a lot of variables. But the com- we have common stories which uh, always starts with when we pick up the when we use or drink or drug the first one, all bets are off. That's where it always starts. Uh, you know, that's where the craving starts. That's where like doing stuff in spite of you knowing the, con- the consequences starts. So that's what we in recovery all have in common. And, and everybody's story is different. Your, your bottom, you know, I went to, you know, this guy went to jail. This one I went to a psych ward. This guy OD three times, you know, everybody's got a different variable. But the one thing we all have in common is if you have the disease of addiction, once you do the first one, you can't stop. Period. End of sentence. <laughs>
0: I have to ask you about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony in 2015. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts were inducted alongside Ringo Starr, Green Day, Bill Withers, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and Double Trouble, so many others. That was a crazy night. What do you remember most about it?
1: Well, I remember talking to Ringo Starr was pretty cool. (laughs) Uh, I said to him, I'll tell you one funny story. Um, I said to Ringo because he came over to me on stage in soundcheck and he introduced himself, which was bizarre in itself. That doesn't even seem like it's a real thing. And, and I said, um, how do I keep... I have one question. He says, I said, how do I keep from crying during my speech? And you know what he says to me? In In the voice, not even in the Ringo voice, in the Ringo cartoon voice, he said to me, he goes, there's nothing wrong with crying. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. So now... When I go to recovery, when I do my recovery music groups, and hopefully I get back to them soon, when somebody starts getting a little weepy when I'm playing a song, uh, I also do a change that's going to come in, in my little recovery music groups, which always gets people at the end. And, and somebody starts crying, I always say, Hey man, let me tell you a story. <laughs> and I tell that story and everybody, you know, loves it and gets, gets a laugh and stuff like that. And yeah, man, I got to play. I mean, if you look at the side, the, Besides the actual award, which was amazing, you know, for a kid from the Bronx that wanted to play guitar, uh, the, the, uh, and giving a speech and looking down, and while you're giving a speech, I mean, I had to literally not look da- down, right? Because when I looked down, dude, the table in front of me was, um, Joe Walsh and his wife, Ringo and his wife, McCartney, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, and who else? There was, I th- was Yoko sitting there? Yeah, she
0: was. She was. She with was. Paul. Yeah. Right.
1: So that that was the table right in front of me as I was giving my speech. Like, how sick is that? So I had to. There was a um, um, there was a monitor in the back of the room that they asked everybody to read their speech off of, which was good because you don't want to be looking down when you're reading. Um, So I was I was completely zoned in on that monitor because I didn't want to look down and see who was sitting in front of me. So there was the speech, there was the award. And then there was the jam at the end, and um, the jam at the end was um, at Soundcheck. Paul Schaefer was the musical director, you know, with the most dangerous band in the world. Uh, you know, the Letterman band was there. And um, there were like a, five guitar players on stage, right? There was there was Joe Walsh, It was me, Gary Clark Jr., Billy, uh, Billy Joe from uh, Green Day. Help me. Who else was there? Tom Morello. Tom Morello was there. Um, 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 um maybe maybe yeah maybe
0: um oh god I love this guy they got to play the class um, of Doyle Bramhall II.
1: Yes. Doyle yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. He was on stage I believe. Uh and then, you know, Paul these couple of Beatles. <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sound check. So this is sound check, right? So Paul says, "Okay, so uh Joe, you go first. Yeah, I want to be your man. So Uh, You take the first solo. Ricky, you take the second one. You take the third one. So we we do the sound check, and I'm looking, and I'm noticing that nobody's going over to Paul. And in my brain, in my Bronx, New York brain, I say, okay, so when this goes down for real, I'm getting my ass over to Paul McCartney. I'm never having this chance again. (laughs) You know, so here's the real show, and we're doing it, and then, and Schaefer taps me on the shoulder and it's time for my thing. And I went straight over to Paul and dude, I got the best photos of me and him face to face with him smiling at me because I'm playing like Chuck Berry riffs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that was like sick, right? And then, and then I see pictures and there's like a little prop photo of me, Paul, you know, during my solo and behind us was Ringo on drums. So like, what is that all about? Right. Uh, and, and the other thing is to the left of, Of me and Joe Walsh was uh, Stevie Wonder playing harp, Peter Wolf, uh, Patty Smith. Patty Smith, I mean, not Smith. Patty Smith. uh, Who else was there? A couple of other cool people were standing there on the stage. Um, And then on the other side, Joan was singing and Billy, uh, no, Billy was playing. Joan was up there with, I can't remember. I mean, there was like a million people on stage.
0: Yeah, it's one of the biggest and best all star jams they've done at a ceremony. Plus, uh, you got two Beatles. You got two Beatles,
1: yeah. But uh, I, um, I was not nervous, frightened. You know, I was more nervous about my speech. You know, because that was pretty nerve wracking. You know, when, when you know you're next, and you're standing up there, it's like, oh shit. Um, <laughs> n- let me get this right. But um, and I can tell you, I spent so long writing that speech. I mean, I was like Neil Simon, man. I was like editing stuff, taking words out, putting words. I wanted to get laughs. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to make sure I, I said the right thing about everybody. You know, uh, I wanted to give props to Joan and and, and her manager and uh, for, you know, taking me on the journey back then. And uh, but I wasn't nervous that night when I see the video back. I'm like, whoa, that was freaking awesome. You know, and everybody asked me the same question. Were you nervous? It's like, I wasn't nervous. It was like we were in this giant
0: band. It was a fun night and you gave a great speech.
1: I made the New York Times the next day.
0: Oh, did they quote you?
1: I think they might have quoted the thing about, um, uh, you know, when I said, uh, and I want to thank my daughter, uh, who, Frankie, who doesn't really uh, care about this too much. And everybody laughed. I said, although she did ask me if she could meet Iggy Azalea. <laughs> to which I replied, in my world, there's only one Iggy you, you need to meet or something like that. That I think that was quoted in the Times and got a big, great reaction and stuff. And um, the one thing I remember is they asked us at rehearsal. They wanted us to read the speech in rehearsal. And I said, no, no, I don't want to read the speech. Because all I kept thinking about, when we used to do Letterman with Joan, or I did it with Roger Dolphy once, he would not talk to us during uh, intermission. Why? Because you don't want to ruin the vibe and you don't want right. somebody to say something that's great, you know. And then you try to recreate something and it's not as funny or it's not as, you know, you know it's not as sincere or something like that. So I just kind of, I kind
0: of disappeared when they were, it was my turn to read the speech, you know, for <laughs> a sound check. Um, but it all turned out great. Listen, Ricky, you're an inspiration. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Cleveland rocks. It does. Just remind people that they can get my record uh,
1: on rickybird.com.
0: And there's a good chance Ricky Bird will be the one who shipped it to you. Not even a good chance. No, it's me.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm the mailman.
0: I'm the mailman. through rain, sleet, or snow. Well, I'll make sure people know, Ricky. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Thank you for uh, your
1: time, and thanks for listening.
0: All right. Take care. You too, man. Once again, probably my favorite interview I've done for CLE Rocks. Thanks to Ricky Bird and his people for setting it up. And again, go get the record. It's available at RickyBird.com. Sobering Times is definitely a record that is inspirational forever and also in in these harsh times that we've all been going through. Thanks for listening. Please give the podcast five stars wherever you're listening to it, whether it's on Acast, Apple Music, or Spotify, wherever. Come back next week. We're going to have more for you as we lead into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame special on HBO that airs November 7th. We're going to also have some special things for you guys at that point. Thank you so much. I'm Troy L. Smith and CLE Rocks.